Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 15. God brought his people out of bondage in Egypt. He brought them to the Red Sea where he hemmed them in with water in front and a desert behind and the rumbling of chariots that pursued them. The trap was set and they were the bait. And God did in that moment what only God could do. He opened the waters of the Red Sea. He caused his people to walk through on dry ground when Pharaoh and his armies followed the Lord brought the sun up and consumed them under the waters destroying in one fell swoop the mightiest army on the face of the earth and when his people turned and they sang a song and they rejoiced over this grand deliverance of of a God who would save that way with power and love and then life goes on Because if the goal was the promised land, you can't sit on this side of the Red Sea forever. This is where most of the rest of your life is found. From here forward to the promised land, between the great salvation of God and the final entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. And so we'll read, recognizing that these events are true, they actually happen, but they also picture for us much greater and more beautiful things. Exodus 15, verse 22, this is God's word. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water. And the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I I find uh, standing before your people a man of unclean lips. I pray that you would be willing to sanctify these lips, to be useful for your purposes today, that you would wield in your hand a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. Uh, These are not mere words, it's the truth. And you must give your people ears to hear, or else we do not know you. We pray that you'll do that today in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, Knowing where you are helps set your expectations. In some ways, that's the reason we felt like we needed to have a congregational meeting to explain where the church is in its process of finding the Lord's next step. Knowing where you are helps set your expectations. I suppose it's the reason that children cry out from the back seat, Dad, how much longer before we get there? Because they're going to behave differently if it's seven minutes versus seven hours. 
Knowing where you are helps set your expectations. I suspect it's why you tap your watch at the doctor's office when it's 2.15 and you're here since the 1.30 appointment was scheduled. Those who lived the events of Exodus 14 would have been tempted to confuse salvation with glory. They would have wanted to, to stand on the banks of the Red Sea looking backward at God's great salvation instead of forward toward the promised land. And that's tempting because salvation in glory and glory are separated in the middle by a kind of wilderness. Knowing where you are helps set your expectations. Spiritually speaking, this is exactly where most of us are today. You've been saved from your sins through the Christ who, who parted the waters of your sin. He opened a path for God. And as we turned and looked backward, it was the Christ who himself stayed in the waters. He took on the floods of God's judgment that your sins deserved. And so here you are on the salvation side of the cross. And you, like me, are bound for the promised land where there is a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells with his people and how we groan, how we long to get to that place. But this life is a journey through a wilderness. And so here is the spot where for most of my life I've struggled to find hope. A little bit of a spot where I have found my own faith stuck at times. So I resonate with the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in this tent we groan longing for our heavenly dwelling. And so you've come to the joy of the cross to grace undeserved and abundantly given. And you've sung over God's wonderful salvation. And then you turn and you realize that eternity with the Father is still a wilderness journey away. Well, knowing where you are helps set your expectations. Exodus 15. They saw God's great salvation. They rejoiced over his steadfast love and his power and his might. And now, now they must learn what you and I must also learn. That the God of steadfast love who saves you also walks with you through the journey ahead. Our passage teaches us that the bitter waters of this wilderness prepare you for the promised land. So this morning we examine uh, three days, two lessons, and one hope. Let's start with three days. Notice the first part of verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. Now, we need to be clear with this. Uh, when you and I talk about a wilderness in Alabama, we're talking about woods and trees, a few creeks here and there, some rocks and some sparse trails. That is not what Exodus means when it describes a wilderness. A wilderness in the book of Exodus is a desert. Moses made Israel set out because the people didn't jump to their feet ecstatic about the opportunity to enter the scary, uncertain place of the desert. You understand that, don't you? 
I mean, how many of you get excited to become utterly helpless and defenseless and thirsty and hungry? And by now, the skins of water that they filled up when they first left Egypt have begun to run dry. And as they turn, they recognize the way ahead is through the desert. That's why Moses had to make them set out. Look again at verse 22. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. That's no small trial. I cannot relate to a desert and its walk, neither can you. The closest I have is my boy Bear Grylls, man versus wild. He's dropped in at the Sahara Desert with a canteen full of water, and he teaches me how to get three days through the desert. And I wonder, like you do, when they turn off the cameras, is he guzzling Evian? I don't know. You must recognize that two million people are walking across the desert and they are thirsty and the burning sky is torching upon them. And just as it becomes utterly unbearable and there is no hope, water. Somebody shouts from the front and what joy they must have felt in the moment parched and empty they look ahead and someone is running and everybody begins to run towards a pool of water I can see it and how did they lap it up when they got there and what a punch in the stomach they must have felt for the narrator says it this way when he speaks in his own language verse 23 when they came to bitterness they could not drink the waters of bitterness because it was bitter, therefore it was named bitterness. And so the narrator uses his repetition to make the stinging point. Let's talk about what they know, what they don't know, and what they should have done. The Hebrew people know that they've been called by God out of slavery in Egypt. They know that God has rescued them. He's brought them through the Red Sea. They know they have to walk ahead to the promised land. And now they know they're thirsty and they know they found water. And the most annoying part that they know is that with all the water they see, it is brackish salty full of minerals or just plain poison so the water is impossible to drink and so they know that the bitter water is only matched by the bitter irony as the poet says water water everywhere and not a drop to drink so here's what they don't know where is God Is he still in that fiery cloud that we follow? And if he is in that cloud, is this some sort of cruel joke? What should they do? Well, they should remember what they know. We can put this on paper. They should remember what they've seen, what they've learned about God. They should lift their eyes to the Father in heaven. They should ask the one who they've seen do miraculous things. God, would you please give us some water? We're in desperate need. They should ask the Lord in that moment to teach them to believe, even when they're thirsty and even when they have no other way to see that the Lord could provide. So let's take this from the bitter waters of this specific account the more common events of your own life. You're walking through this world. As a 
believer, you know that God's called you out of slavery. You know he's rescued you from the eternal condemnation that you deserved. He's given you a new identity as his own adopted son or daughter. And you know that the salvation which was won at the cross is a kind of summons to walk ahead toward the promised land. But you get thirsty along the way. Because there are times in this life that you know more acutely than other times. This really is a a desert. How painful it is to come to a place that looks like it could be a fresh, cold glass of water, the, the kind of water that you spiritually and emotionally and relationally long for. But then when you go to drink that water, you suddenly recognize that the water is bitter and I'm still standing in the middle of a desert. Bitter waters. And in that moment of unmet expectations, when the bitterness that you drank becomes the bitterness of your heart. Well, I came to this church hoping that it would fill my spiritual thirst, but now I need to leave because I have not connected with people and I don't like the music and the pastor sprinkles babies with water. That at least looks cruel. And they don't really have enough things to entertain my kids either. I came to this friendship. I I came to this new relationship. And I hope that it it would be a spot for me to finally emotionally connect with another person. To be satisfied deeply emotionally. On the other end of the spectrum. Well, I've been married for 18 years. I married him or her in hopes that the relational thirst that I feel would finally be quenched. But here I am again. And the relational waters taste bitter and my heart grows more bitter with every sip. What do you do in the moment when what you know about God and what you don't feel about his presence seems to make the whole desert journey just another cruel joke. Well, I wonder if you did what they do. Verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? I mean, look, these people are spiritually savvy and they're just as crooked as you and I are. Do they not know that God answers prayers? Do they not remember that he heard their cries, that he rescued them from slavery, that he brought them across the banks of the Red Sea? Do they not remember his powers over creation? Don't they know that this is a God who specializes in water? The Nile from water to blood back to water. Do they not recognize this is a God who specializes in water when he takes the salty waters of the Red Sea and congeals them into walls? Do they not know? Sure they know. But it's been three days, three whole days from the greatest salvation moment of their entire lives, and they are thirsty. But they are too savvy. They are too crooked of heart to grumble and complain against God because that's stupid. 
That's spiritually stupid. You don't complain against the almighty God of heaven. And so they did what most of us do. They grumbled against the people. The person standing in front of them because it takes less courage than it does faith to cry out to God. Three days from salvation. That's all it took. If you're like me on first reading, you wonder how in the world could they be so faithless after three days? It's just three days from the biggest experience of grace in their entire lives. Just three days from grace and they failed to trust the Lord. And you initially want to be really tough on them until you realize that they are you. They are me. Three days? There are times that I can't make it three hours or three minutes from tasting the salvation wonders of God to some spot in my heart of bitterness and grumbling over my perception that God didn't really take care of me. It's troubling. It's humiliating how much like them I am. So what do you do when what you know and what you don't know seem to be in conflict with each other? Uh, you, you, You use the salvation you know given to you from the God you know through the Christ that you have met and you push ahead through the wilderness that you cannot see and you don't understand. God and his Christ can be trusted so that the bitter waters of the wilderness prepare you for the promised land. Three days, now let's look at two lessons. The people grumbled against Moses, and he did what any good mediator would do in that situation. He cries out to the only one who can do something about it, verse 25. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. I've said several times through our study in the book of Exodus that God saved the Hebrew people for his own glory. But what makes up that glory? In other words, what are the ingredients? What's the substance of that glory? In other words, does God receive all the glory that he intends to receive simply by rescuing a slave people out of the hands of a dictator? And if he does, then shouldn't the story have ended at verse 21? Shouldn't we move on to something else? Verse 14, a great deliverance. Verse 15, the people sang about it and they all lived happily ever after. But that's not what happens. There's 25 chapters ahead. Because the substance of God's glory is not found only in his power to save, but in his determination to sanctify unfaithful people like them and me. And you, it's not enough to defeat their enemies. God must teach his children to lovingly trust and believe him to take care of them. That's why the story makes this abrupt change. And that's what illustrates my point. 
Because you would expect, wouldn't you, in the passage that Moses throws the log in the water and the people take off running to the water and they get down and they drink and they lap it up and their thirst is quenched and they laughed and they celebrated. How great is Yahweh? Instead, the narrator reads the sermon that Moses preached in response to the miracle. It's at verse 25. There the Lord made a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. Saying, verse 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. Or I am the Lord, your healer. For sure, it's a miracle. Right? It is a miracle. But they've already had enough information to know that this is a God who does miracles. Mara is here for more than quenching their thirst. It teaches them to trust him. And as painful as it is to say, they need Mara more than they need Elim. It's why there are four verses about Mara and only one verse at the end about Elim. Charles Spurgeon says, perhaps there is four times as much fruit to be obtained from the bitter waters of Mara than from the 12 springs of water at Elim. And what is true for them is true for you and me. A Christian life is a journey through the wilderness and everyone in this room is on that journey. And yet you make false presumptions the way I do. We say, well, the water is only bitter for me. Nobody else experiences what I experience. Nobody has it the way I have it. I suspect in a room this large, there are people who feel that the vast majority of their life has been this journey through the wilderness and the vast majority of water that you have been given is simply bitter. Because there are times when we very easily lose perspective and we say, Lord, the water is never sweet it's only bitter and of course that's not true is it more than that when when the lord decides in his fatherly care to bring you to a place of mara when he allows you to experience bitterness he is there teaching you the same two lessons that he taught the people of israel number one he tests you to grow your faith And number two, he is the one who heals. First lesson, God tests you to grow us in faith. That's why Spurgeon says that Mara is superior to Elim because it's better in the short term. You are in the midst of the wilderness. And if you've got to be in the wilderness, it is best to learn to trust the one who has the capacity to carry you through it. Fathers and mothers, How much do you want your own children to learn to trust you? That's what the Lord is doing at Marah. Verse 25. At Marah, God made a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Let's be really clear. The statute and the rule is not the basis for their salvation. They are already saved. 
They were saved at the Red Sea. This is an understanding and it's a lesson in what it means to have a relationship with a faithful God. God is making himself known as a trustworthy one. And here's what God wanted them to understand and here's the lesson for you. This is where when you're writing a sermon for yourself, you put these little asterisks by it. And when you go back through your notes, you put little exclamation marks. It's so people at this spot will wake up and they'll hear your words. Listen carefully. This is a wilderness. And there really are bitter places along the journey through the wilderness. But God alone is trustworthy to get you through the wilderness and through the bitter places of this life. That's biblical freedom. For as much as we wax on in this country about freedom, we do not really understand biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is the privilege to live as God designed you to live, to be in a relationship of faith with a trustworthy God. First lesson, God tests his people to grow us in faith. Second lesson, God is the one who heals. Now the blessings of this relationship are these, listen to them. If you will listen to my voice and trust me and do what I teach you to do, then I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, I, I keep saying this wrong. I am the Lord, your healer, Yahweh Rafi. Sometimes in the Old Testament when Yahweh's name is linked to this verb, it, it explains God's physical ability to heal And certainly that's true, but the much more common way in the Old Testament that this verb is connected to Yahweh's name is is to be used and proclaimed in a figurative broad sense. To say, I am the God who restores that which is deformed or sick into that which is good and right. I'm the one who brings about and preserves wholeness. Where's the comfort in that? Why does this matter and why is it so full of grace? Because these people just failed the test. They just proved that we are very sick and twisted. Israel just failed the test and immediately they learned that Yahweh desires to be the healer of those who fail the test. Oh, for sure, there is a conditional component to this. If Israel will be faithful to this relationship, God will push back all the curses of the fall as it pertains to sickness and illness over them. But more than that, the beauty is found in this. These are unfaithful people. And God promises to heal them spiritually forever. The bitter waters of the wilderness prepare you for the promised land. Three days, two Lessons, finally one hope. Verse 27. Then they came to Elim where the waters, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. After Marah, God took them to a, a kind of oasis and the numbers of the springs and the numbers of the palm trees are no accident. 12 and 70 
enough springs for the 12 tribes of Israel to enjoy and enough palm trees for the 70 elders to rest beneath? What's the point? The point is God's provision is abundant. It is full. And his generosity is your one hope. What do you think freed slaves know about the concept of abundance? What abundance would they comprehend from a little wooden idol that they set up in their tent? What abundance would they understand from a, from a cruel Pharaoh tyrant? Don't you suppose that they presumed that like Pharaoh, their God is miserly? That he is stingy in goodness? Well, perhaps he'll give us enough, but probably just barely enough. But no. God says, if you walk with me and you trust me, you won't just barely survive in the desert. You'll thrive because I'm generous. God's generosity is, in fact, your only hope. So for the people of Israel, Elim became a picture of many things. One, as one scholar said, they should not conclude too quickly that they know the meaning of their circumstances, especially when they can't see how the Lord will work on their behalf. Maybe you need that lesson today. You do not know the meaning of every circumstance you face. You do not understand fully the bitter waters that you drink. But you do know that God has brought you to Mara. And you know that he will move you to better grounds. Eventually. For now, all you know is that he knows. And that his posture toward you as one of his children is not stingy but generous. Secondly, Elim is a short-term reminder of a long-term promise. Oh yes, today they walk through the wilderness but they are not meant to stay there. Elim is a stop along the way to remind them that they are bound for a promised land. God gives you little stops like that along the way, doesn't he? Through the course of life, maybe it's a, a break in semesters or it's a summer vacation or it's special times with your loved ones. And you know, like I do, that those moments of respite always come with an arrow pointing ahead. For you and me, those little stops point us to and remind us that there is a day coming that is abundant in rest, abundant in fullness with the relationship with the Father. And we are moving toward a land that is better than this one. And that's the place we're meant to dwell. If you know the rest of the story, you know that the nation of Israel took 40 years to get to the promised land. And then once they get there, the rest of the Old Testament tells us a really sad story of their own unfaithfulness to God in the land that he promised to give them. And it's a long and sad story that tells us that they were more sick than they ever understood which I think is the reason that the prophet Malachi speaks at the end of the Old Testament of some wonderful news. Malachi promises 
that a son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And so Jesus came, healing many who were sick to show that he is the God who heals. And the physical healing was simply meant to testify to the deeper healing that Christ offers. Friends, Mara points us to Elim in the same way that the cross points us to the promised land. At Mara, God's mediator Moses threw a piece of wood into bitter water. At the cross, God's mediator, the Christ, was himself thrown on a piece of wood into the bitter waters of your sin and mine. And then the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in his wings. In Christ, the bitter places of your heart are made sweet. In Christ, the wounds of sin and consequence are healed. By his wounds, you are healed. In Christ, there is abundant provision. There is fountains of overflowing grace upon grace. But you must come to Christ. Which is why John 7, 37, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Because Jesus is, in a sense, a proverbial oasis in the midst of the wilderness. But it doesn't stop there. We've gone from Exodus to Malachi to John. And the Bible closes with just one more picture. It's a summons for those who spiritually thirst. Revelation twenty-two seventeen: The Spirit of God and the Bride. That is, the Holy Spirit and the church say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take of the waters of life, come. It's a summons to march toward the Christ into his eternal kingdom. As I walk... Through this wilderness, I often just need a little perspective. Perhaps you do as well. The Bible teaches us that the bitter waters of this wilderness prepare you for the promised land. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. That that which we enjoy today in worship is but a foretaste of that which will be ours in heavenly kingdom. We long for these new heavens and the new earth. And we give you thanks for providing your word. Oh, Father, would you nourish us on Christ. Receive our worship again through him. Amen.